the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. If a, a Bible verse such as, oh, I don't know, pick one off the top of my head, God helps those who helps themselves. If that is one of your, your favorite Bible verses, then uh, this segment of the program is going to be a particular interest to you. Well, you know which uh, apostle uh, wrote that, uh, that particular uh, well-known, well-known, uh, often, often cited by many believers. God helps those who help themselves. As that's the apostle, apostle Benjamin. Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> now, if all of a sudden you you just put your you, you carefully you didn't hit the brake too hard and you know end up having the guy behind you crash into you, if you're a little troubled to find out that that's not in the Bible but actually something that was said and written by Benjamin Franklin, uh, not whom to best of my knowledge was not an apostle, then uh, there may be some other misinterpretations of other verses that actually are in Scripture that may uh, come as a bit of surprise to you. Biblical illiteracy is one of the biggest issues challenging the church today. And, you know, I think not surprisingly for a lot of folks, they will happen across a verse. And believe me, this is done by lay and the so-called professionals in the pulpit as well. They will happen across a verse that seems to fit the application of the point that they are trying to make. And so they'll use it, whether or not it's in context, whether or not the application is actually appropriate or historically correct, oftentimes kind of falls by the wayside. Sadly, sometimes this leads to significant erroneous doctrinal teaching and and hurts people, quite frankly. Well, a new book out that talks about this um, and sets apart a a handful of key scriptures that are some of the most oft misquoted scriptures in in the Bible, um, all contained inside the pages of a new book called The Most Misused Verses in the Bible, Surprising Ways God's Word is Misunderstood. And joining us now is Dr. Eric Margerhoff. He is senior pastor at Clearwater Community Church and author of this new book. And uh, Eric, great to have you on the show tonight. Great to be with you, Craig. I've never been to San Francisco. I'd love to see it someday. Well, great. Well, we'd love to have you out here. And meanwhile, you're you're out here through the magic of radio. That's right. So when we hear misapplication of some scripture, and, and you know, I, I don't want to give every believer the feeling that they're 
there alone in the camp, a lot of folks will hear something like God helps those who help themselves and think, well, gee, that certainly sounds like it's Bible uh, when in fact it is not. And then sadly, it, it goes even deeper than that when people tend to sometimes, as you suggest in the book, kind of pick and choose uh, which scriptures they want or certain scriptures that seem to be appropriate, the kind of stuff that you just kind of pull off the top of your head, slip it into the situation that quite frankly, more often than not, has nothing to do with the situation at hand. Well, we uh, we have a tendency to look at situations, and we 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 have a scripture verse in our head that just seems to perfectly fit this circumstance, and we try to insert it in there in such a way that is foreign to the original author's intent. And um, and I think that you said it right on the head; you hit the nail on the head, so to speak, um, when you mentioned that this can hurt people. Um, people take things out of context and use it wrongly, even in wrong situations. And you can kind of use this uh, Bible we have as a club in a way that it was not meant to be used, and it dishonors God. And it can tend to lead people astray, too, can't it? I mean, we, we see entire doctrines that are sometimes created out of this. I, I am sometimes uh, equally fascinated and appalled by some of these so-called uh, word of faith teachers that are popular on television these days, uh, with certainly a subset of, of, of uh, the Christian community, uh, that will sometimes so stretch and distort scriptures and, and, and certain passages, all in an effort to try and prove their point. It's almost as if... Uh, you know, they they drew the conclusion, then went looking for a scripture to support it instead of it the other way around. Well, this is how the fall of humankind uh, came about. Was uh, even in the first chapter of my book, I talk about how the very first quoting of God's word was a misquote from the serpent mm-hmm. in the garden Garden of Eden, and so it was a, a slight twist, you know, to what God really did say. And uh, that's how it began. And so that you saw how that path led us down to where we are in a sinful world that we live in today. So this is going to happen quite often in those cults and other types of religions that are going to construct a system, a humanistic system, mind you, based on verses that they pulled out of context, subtracted from, added to, you know, you can just do all kinds of damage that way, and I even refer to how Hitler used scripture uh, back in his day to paint a picture of the whole Jewish race uh, as a brood of vipers. Of course, we know Jesus was talking directly to the Pharisees, the religious elite of his day that were corrupt, but yet Hitler robbed that out of its context and applied it to the entire Jewish people, which, and you can see where that led us. We know that there are certainly those examples of, of extremes, and, sure. and oftentimes uh, taken out of content with absolute ill intent from the very get-go. I mean, I, we can certainly argue that the serpent in the garden, in the whole hath, hath God said questioning, uh, certainly went into this out of ill intent. But within the broader Christian community to these days, how much of this really is perhaps less about intentionally distorting Scripture as opposed to maybe kind of being of the stuff that, uh, for want of a better maybe uh, example, uh, a doctor would be like a, a urban legend. In other words, where certain passages get so often misquoted that it kind of becomes now a part of the new Christian lexicon, and we don't really realize that you know our favorite verse that we think means this, in fact, all along has never meant that. 
Well, yeah, for example, like where two or three are gathered, you know, we often hear that at prayer meetings, but that's actually about the context of church discipline in Matthew 18. And it's God's promise to be with them when the church has to take a judicial decision about sin. And so when we look at that closer in its context, wow, it really enlightens us. But I want to just go back to what you said at the very beginning of that uh, last statement there, is that I believe that, that all of us at times um, have unwittingly, unknowingly, perhaps, without any ill intent at all, have misused Scripture. I know I have. Um, I think that uh, many of us could say that, you know what, we didn't realize that at the time, but that Scripture now means something different than what we originally thought it did. And I think we can do that innocently. But what this book is challenging us to do is to take a really close look at some of our favorite verses and and look to see if indeed we are using them correctly. Because if we do use them correctly, number one, it's going to give us a, a right view of God and who He is. It's going to expand our view of God. And then secondly, it's going to just fill us with rich, deep truths that we could apply to our life in a way that that really brings blessing and life to us. Is part of this, as you've done the research for the book, uh, is, is there a trend taking place here? In other words, is this simple, some isolated particular passages of Scripture that, as I suggest, have kind of elevated themselves into kind of the, the urban legend within Christendom? Uh, or, or is there something broader going on here? And I pose that question because we've seen kind of at certain levels within uh, postmodern Christianity, as Francis Schaeffer would suggest, uh, a, a, I think a, a slow trend toward the devolving Mm. of of biblical literacy. I mean, we went from, for example, in many pulpits in America, a very firm and uncompromising God hath said. Then it kind of went into our catechism teaches to now a lot of the, the feel-good preachers, I'll call them, kind of, uh, you know, conclude with, in my opinion. So it, it, it seems as if there's a, a little bit of a slippery slope. So is, is this part of a bigger issue going on here? Absolutely. I think that we are, are in one of the most biblically illiterate um, cultures that we've had here in America ever since this country has began. And, and I believe that uh, it's important for us to be preaching and teaching the Word of God and not just tickling, itching ears that just want to hear certain things said to them. Um, I think we need to really return back to the idea of solid biblical study where we actually study this Bible and get into it and unpack it and go through it verse by verse, book by book, and refer to other books as we study and, and kind of do an inductive study method. Other methods are out there, I'm sure. You know, sitting under expository preaching, I think, is another way of creating a culture in a church where the Word of God is revered and understood and submitted to by God's people. And when you create that kind of culture, boy, you're talking about an altogether different level of depth than what you're seeing in many places today. This is the viewpoint or the approach when it comes to the study and application of scriptures we see in Second Timothy uh, 2 and following, that we are to rightly divide the word of truth. Sad thing is we don't really know what that means. We're going to talk a bit more about that. Even work through a couple of passages that you're going to think, oh, that, that's my life verse. And maybe get a whole new take on the matter. Uh, with us today is Dr. Eric Bargerhoff. 
He is the author of a new book called The Most Misused Verses in the Bible, Surprising Ways That God's Word is Misunderstood. We'll come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. We're visiting tonight with the author and pastor, Dr. Eric Barjahuff. The new book is called The Most Misused Verses in the Bible. And while the, this particular book certainly walks you through some of the, the big ones out there, obviously anyone can be misquoted, misapplied. And before we get into some examples, Doctor, maybe you can walk us through some of the methodology that is necessary to really fully understand and apply a verse. It's easy to go and pick out a sentence or two and say, aha, this does what I want it to do. And if we did that, we could make the Bible say anything we wanted to in that regard. But of course, that's not God's intent. Uh, talk to us a bit about uh, what contextualization means and how to go about, as Second uh, Timothy 2 suggest rightly divide the word of truth? Well, the first thing I do, Craig, is I take an approach that looks at Scripture on the surface at face value. I kind of look at it and say, okay, what is being said here? What is being communicated? I, I kind of take a literal approach to Scripture in that way, unless it's obvious that the, the passage is speaking figuratively or metaphorically, like um, you know, going through the eye of a needle so to speak. Um, but what I really do is look before and after the scripture and see what the paragraph is about, what the uh, whole particular chapter of, that this is found in is talking about, what are the themes that are emerging out of that. I look at the book as a whole, and this is where even a great study Bible would be of, of great help to, to anyone who wants to interpret scripture correctly. There's lots of wonderful information there about the author of the book, the original audience to which it was intended, some of the major theological themes that come out, maybe even some of the interpretive problems are even suggested there at the beginning of the introduction of each book. And, and you can get a bigger picture of what's happening here and what are the political climate that the writing was in, what's the social customs that were a part of the day in which the... Uh, the uh, original hearers were a part of. So you can use these tools that you don't have to be a, a PhD or a scholar or, or even a pastor to be able to discern what the Bible is talking about as you study it here. But those things are very key and important as you look at each particular passage of Scripture, you have to look at what comes behind and before and around it so that you get an idea of what's being discussed at the time that you come across that passage. And that probably, in and of itself, is one of the most easiest and yet most critical uh, tools that are available at our disposal. Because I know some people say, well, gee, I'm I'm trying to consume or spend as much time in the Word as I can per day, but my goodness, I go out and get a, a study Bible. In fact, I've got one sitting here in the studio. I won't, I won't say what brand it is, but it is fashioned in such a manner, Eric, that the, the top half are the passages, and then the, the bottom half of each page in a, in, in a font type that's half the size of, of the scriptural print, it's all the footnotes. And boy, by the time you work through all this, my goodness, you know, I, it, it would take a month of Sundays just to absorb a verse or two on that basis. But if you simply help to put things in context by looking several verses behind particular passages you're, you're studying or looking at and following, that can help a lot to contextualize things, can't it? Oh, absolutely, and that's, that's how we should interpret 
the scripture rightly and and it's it's no different than overhearing a conversation at the mall you know if you just hear one sentence that someone said over the drinking fountain you may not have the whole coast the whole conversation that had happened throughout the course of their walking through the stores or discussing things the same is true i mean it's a crude example but it's the same idea when you come to the scripture you've got to listen to the entire conversation in that sense i would suggest even reading through the entire bible to kind of figure out what are the main themes of scripture you know the creation redemption that comes as a result of the fall and god's plan of choosing a people for himself and and then the promise of the Messiah. So taking even a whole Bible approach helps us get a big picture. There's one other thing that I would like to add to interpreting things rightly is also understanding what's called genre or a literary form. Uh, One of the things that I even write about in this book is understanding the nature of a proverb, that a proverb is not necessarily an absolute promise. For example, the train up a child in the way you should go passage, Um, It's not an absolute promise, but they're general principles based on experience and observation over a period of time. And so understanding the nature of a proverb will help you interpret what this proverb is saying and how you should properly apply it to your life. If you've just joined our conversation tonight, our visit is with Dr. Eric Margerhoff. The book is called The Most Misused Verses in the Bible, Surprising Ways God's Word is Misunderstood. Uh, I I almost hesitate, Eric, to head down this road because I know I'm really going to get telephone calls. (laughs) But in terms of particular translations, and we we may even need to delineate for some listeners uh, what we mean by a a translation... uh, Is there any one that is the most accurate? And I know folks have to deal with clarity on one hand, accuracy on another, and there seem to be so many versions of the Bible out there these days that uh, it's hard sometimes to know which one might be the best. Well, you are opening up a can of worms there, aren't you? Yep. <laughs> I think I just say just say it for the record here. I believe sure. in reading the Bible that that Moses wrote and that Paul preached out of, that's and right. that's well, and that's the King James. <laughs> <laughs> I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, it is it is. Let me just say this: there are many good translations of the Bible, and I do talk about this a little bit in the book as to why we have new translations that come out, because language changes, and context of how we use language changes, and and so it's important for us to understand that it's a legitimate thing to write a new translation of Scripture as, as different hearers and different audiences. I mean, we're still wanting to be faithful to the original Hebrew and the original Greek and Aramaic text that the Bible was written in, but I think for, for me, one of my personal favorites is one that came out in 2001. Uh, the English Standard Version is one of the translations that I have found to be a good, essentially literal, word-for-word translation that I think is very, very excellent with regard to its faithfulness. I think there are many others, like the New American Standard. Um, I, I, I like I like many different translations. I like to read different translations to see how the translators have have worked through these texts, but I think one of the most accurate 
is that I'm using. Again, this is not to say that this is has to be this the 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 translation for everyone, but the one that I am using now almost regularly is the English Standard Version. Okay, all right, that's fair enough. And some of us, I mean, I, I having grown up with the King James. Sure, I did. I'm yeah. comfortable with it, and I'm I am comfortable enough in understanding uh, that version of the English language going back to the 1600s uh, that I don't get tripped up. I know some people do, and therefore maybe uh, not necessarily using the King James, particularly for for new believers or those who don't feel uh, comfortable with the King's English, uh, might be better off. Well, I, I grew up uh, memorizing first out of the King James, and then during my high school and college years, I used the older NIV, the 1984 version, and and it wasn't until recently that I switched over to the ESV. So, you know, everyone has different seasons of life where maybe one translation uh, it better suits them, and depending on their context, their culture, where they're at. But I think there are some translations that are absolutely better than others. There are some translations that I would say maybe have a little bit of a agenda with it, but mm-hmm. in the general sense, I, I think that... Um, the ones that I first referred to there are pretty healthy. We're going to take a brief time out, come back with some examples as our conversation continues with Dr. Eric Bargerhoff for the book, The Most Misused Verses in the Bible, Surprising Ways God's Word is Misunderstood. We'll come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation, and as we do so, you know, the the Bible tells us that, for example, um, it rains on both the just and the unjust. How many of us during circumstances, if we have a friend or a family member who's going through particularly difficult times, whatever that might be, might might give them a word of encouragement, like from Romans 8.28, very popular scripture. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And so we, we, we will quote that scripture as a means of trying to comfort the person who's going through some difficult times. Don't worry, it's all going to work out. All things will work together for good. Uh, Dr. Bargerhoff, what's wrong with the application of that under those circumstances? Well, we need to define what it means to say that it's working together for good. Um, because oftentimes we have inserted our own preconceived idea of what we think good should look like for our own life. And of course that involves, you know, financial wealth, prosperity, financial health, um, and even physical health as well. And so I think at times we need to understand that that verse it needs to be understood within its very next sentence in the, in the scripture, verse 29, not just Romans 8:28, but Romans 8:29 which says that for those God, whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, which is the greatest good for us, is that we become more like Jesus Christ. So what that means then is that God is using great triumphs and even these tragedies that we go through in this fallen world, and he sovereignly weaves them together in a way whereby he can receive the glory in our life, where we become more like Jesus Christ in our character and in our actions. And that is truly the good that God intends for us. 
And so it's not a humanistically defined understanding of good. It must be a spiritually rich, robust, theologically sound definition of good that is pleasing and perfect to God in accordance with his will. And there's really two two portions of that scripture, too, aren't there? We, we have the, for those who love God and work together for good. So just to try to toss it out there to suggest that for anybody who's going for difficult times, don't worry, it's all going to work out, which I think we, we typically interpret to mean our way, that's not at all what that passage of Scripture is saying, nor to whom it's being said. No, it's it's actually a promise for believers, so I want to make sure we understand that for those who, who love God, those who are the called ones according to His purpose. And so that is a very important um, factor that we need to understand when we interpret this verse, is that this is not just for anybody, this is for God's people. But it's But it's for God's people who are living life on this earth as aliens and strangers in this world, knowing that the greatest good is yet to come. And that's the plan that God has for us in our eternal future with Him. You know, I was thinking the other day um, just how much we look forward to those new glorified resurrected bodies that we'll have in the new heavens and the new earth as we all get older. We know that these, these, these things are wearing out. And um, and it makes you long for what's to come. And so we should understand that the greatest good is a future promise, but some of the greatest good that we can experience now is not it to be seen in a materialistic, personal agenda way. It's more of what is going to glorify God, which is going to please Him, and what aligns me with His character so I become more like His Son. Now that, that fundamental foundation throws a bit of a wrench into the monkey works uh, for John 14, 13, 14, which is so off-sided, particularly by those in the Word of Faith camp, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, ask for anything in my name. I, this I will do if the Father may be glorified in the Son. Uh, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And it almost sends, tends to make God sound like this huge cosmic bellhop, in a sense. Yeah, I kind of call it like a genie in a bottle, yeah. where yeah. where we just kind of uh, have our agenda, have our laundry list, and we endorse it by putting um, praying in God's name at the end of it. Now, I, I believe we need to understand what it means to pray in His name. It's a common phrase that He used quite a bit while He was here on earth. And, of course, I trace some of that in the book. And But when the heart of it comes out, I think what we're talking about here is doing something and doing that which is in accordance with God's will, ultimately for His glory. So when we pray in His name, our main priority, our main motive must be, what is it, that Lord, that's going to glorify you the most? And, and how can my prayer be shaped in such a way that your agenda and your priorities and your purposes far exceed mine? And so that is how we should begin. And in fact, there's a great book called Praying Backwards, written by Brian Chappelle, who says essentially that if we start talking to God with the idea that we're going to pray in His name, and that's how we go into the prayer, it will change the way we pray about the things that we pray about, because ultimately, we're going to be focused on God and His glory and what's pleasing and perfect to Him. Well, that other passage, you know, um, the the notion that uh, the Lord will give us the desires of our heart, but then God also defines for us where He says our heart needs to be focused. And so it's easy to say, well, I desire, you know, a brand new Cadillac in the driveway and, you know, season tickets to the 49ers, whatever the case might be. But then God talks about blessed is he whose mind is set upon the Lord, whose heart is set upon the Lord. 
So if God says he's going to give you the desire of your heart and your heart is set on him, now all of a sudden that, that just changes the feeling of that scripture altogether now, doesn't it? It does. If you're delighting yourself in God, then guess who it is that is shaping the desires of your heart? Mm-hmm. And, and that's the point, I think, is that our delight, our joy, our sense of being and purpose, our sense of identity is found about who we are in Christ, abiding in Christ, no matter what our circumstances are. And when that's our goal and that's our focus, that's our priority, it changes the way we view our world, we view our life and think about things so that when we do pray, we're praying according to His will, as First John 5 uh, talks about. And then when we ask according to His will and His name, then we'll receive that which we've asked to Him. Why? Because it's according to His perfect plan. Amen. There's one more I want to have you take a quick uh, swipe at, and and it's one that I have memories of going back into the 1970s, uh, for those of us that are old enough to remember, a dwindling group to be sure, uh, the big Jesus rallies, Jesus 79, Jesus 79, uh, we had these rallies in uh, the Candlestick Park in San Francisco, marches on Washington, D.C., and it seems, Eric, no matter where you went, you would hear Second Chronicles 7.14 cited, if my people who are called by by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And and you would get some of these personalities up on stage, quote that, and then talk about the evil people that need to get their act together and you sinners out there and people in Congress and so on and so forth. And I always thought, aren't we directing that particular passage at the wrong people? Instead of pointing out toward others, shouldn't we be pointing toward ourselves? Well, true. Uh, This was a message specifically in the Old Testament for God's people, Israel. So, first of all, it is a message primarily for God's people. But it was also for a particular nation, and that was the nation of Israel during the time of the reign of King Solomon, after he dedicated the temple. Um, There was a promise that God gave to him that if there were times where Israel would wander astray and, and, and go off the path, and, and of course we know the history there, they did many a time, um, judgment would come. God would bring judgment upon them and correct them and train them and punish them and, and try to woo them back to living according to his perfect law. And, and as a result of their disobedience throughout their history, God would sometimes bring judgment. And that judgment would come in the form of even a physical judgment that would fall upon the very land of Israel itself. There was drought, there was pestilence, there was all kinds of locusts that eat their crops, and that was part of God's judgment. So here, God is promising Solomon that upon their repentance, he promised them that he would literally, physically heal that land that was decimated by all those locusts and droughts and famines and things like that. So it's a specific promise to a specific people at a specific time. But what we tend to do is we kind of hijack it out of that context. We generalize it with regard to any idea of healing our land and then apply it as a promise for spiritual revival for any nation where Christians reside, and that's not particularly the right application. Good idea, but wrong verse. 
We appreciate you spending some time tonight uh, to help uh, put some uh, new perspective or correct perspective, I might better say, uh, on the whole reading and studying and application of God's Word. The book, it's a page turner, to be sure, an easy one to read and one that I hope will, uh, will get you set in the right direction when it comes to properly studying and applying God's Word. The most misused verses in the Bible, surprising ways God's Word is misunderstood, newly published by Bethany House and available at uh, bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as we're told in 2 Timothy 3 and 16. All Scripture inspired by God, useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what to do, which is right. The key, though, is we have to properly interpret it and apply it. And Eric Barger has helped us do a tremendous job of that tonight. Thanks so much. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It was a number of years ago, traveling into China, when I first very clearly and distinctively became aware of the international problem of human trafficking. You know, we think of slavery and things of this sort from an American perspective, largely based on America's experience with the issue of slavery back in the 1800s. It was an eye-opening, startling experience for me to come to the realization that human trafficking is very much alive all over the world today, even taking place here in the United States. And it it takes place in, in many fashions for a lot of different reasons. In China, walking along a street in a major city of the South one day and seeing a number of young girls, some of whom had obvious limbs missing, had been maimed, perhaps, I thought, in an accident of some sort. And in talking with a missionary friend and interpreter, I began to inquire about the alarming number of young ladies that I saw on this particular street that seemed to have a missing arm or a missing hand, something of this nature. And I inquired as to why this was, feeling it was kind of unusual. He went on to explain to me that, well, these are cast-offs. These are young girls who had been kidnapped from their home villages, brought into major cities, and sold as sex slaves, largely the tourist trade. And on occasions, these young girls would fail to cooperate, would perhaps try to uh, turn their captors into the authorities, and so as retribution, they would typically cut off an arm or a hand to maim them in one fashion or another as a means of defiguring them, making them less desirable, handicapping their ability to earn a living, and ultimately punishing them for not being cooperative with the sex traffickers. That opened my eyes to what has become a global problem. And as we talk about this topic today, I'm joined by Sean Litton. Sean is Vice President of Field Operations on behalf of International Justice Missions. They direct casework operations around the world in places from Latin America to Africa, South Asia, and Southeast Asia, developing intervention strategies and advocating with local and national authorities to address the problem of human trafficking around the globe. And Sean, great to have you on the program today. Craig, it's wonderful to be with you. Thank you. That experience that I had in China a number of years ago, I sadly have come to discover, was not a unique and rare one, but in fact is taking place in more and more places around the globe today, even in so-called developed nations. Tell us why. Well, uh, there, the main problem, is, as we see it, is in uh, countries where the laws against these crimes are not enforced at all. In other words, 
the traffickers, the criminals, the pimps who are uh, uh, selling these children have no fear of any sanction, no fear of any re repercussion, no fear of any negative consequences, and so they engage in this practice with impunity, despite the fact that in almost every country uh, today, it's against the law. It's against the law to sell children for sex. And yet, in spite of that, of course, we see the sex trafficking trade uh, growing pretty significantly. Of course, we've perhaps caught a special or two of what goes on in, in places such as uh, parts of Southeast Asia um, and countries that we're all too familiar with, Thailand, for example. And as this sex trafficking trade is, is growing and developing, um, talk to us a bit about, number one, how girls get even pulled into all of this and, and why it's seemingly is being allowed to flourish in some countries. Right. So the children that get involved typically um, are migrating. So they're, they're, they're from very poor and impoverished areas. And someone comes to their village, somebody from their same ethnic group, uh, they generally refer to them as an auntie. Um, they come to the village, maybe they're from the village or a nearby village, and they, they say tell their parents, you know, I can help your daughter find a good job in the city. The daughter feels a debt of gratitude to her parents uh, in many of these cultures, and, and she's obligated to care for them. And so she wants to help her parents, so she'll go with this auntie. And, and then the auntie, uh, it turns out, is a trafficker. And rather than give her a good job or take care of her, this young woman will be sold into a brothel. And once there... Um, She's, she's locked away, she's, she's kept from going for help, but even if she could go for help, usually she doesn't speak the local language. Um, she sees the police coming by the brothel and collecting money every week, so there's really nowhere for her to turn. She has no access to her family. They're from a village up in the hills or far, far away, or even in another country in many cases. And she's literally trapped. And then uh, if she refuses to participate, if she refuses to cooperate, they'll deny her food. Um, in many cases, she'll be beaten. She'll be forced to watch, watch pornography. And just over time, they will wear her will down until she submits. She submits herself to this abuse um, that goes on day after day after day after day. And these girls, Sean, literally get trapped into this scenario. They're far away from home. They're embarrassed about the circumstances that have taken place. And quite often, those that are engaged in the sex trafficking threaten these girls and their families, don't they? Absolutely, yes. And so, you know, the trafficker will tell the girl, I paid good money for you. And if, if you don't cooperate, then, you know, I will find your family. Or there'll, there'll be stories of girls who have attempted to run away only to be brought back and killed in front of the other girls to frighten them into submission and cooperation. It's pretty horrifically manipulative, isn't it? I mean, aside from the horror of what they're drawing these young girls into, quite often, as you suggest, uh, they are trying to better their station in life, maybe move from a village into the city with the hope and promise of earning more money to take care of their family. Maybe there's somebody in the family that's ill, they need... Uh, 
money because of additional medical expenses, things of this sort. We've even seen cases of human sex trafficking taking place where women and men sometimes are being lured with promises of of immigration into the United States. And if you come over, we'll help uh, pay your way and get you into the country, things of this sort, only to find out that once they arrive here, not having any contacts, having no command of the language, suddenly they're being forced into sex slavery. Exactly, yeah, and they have, you know, their their passport, if they had one, has been taken away, so they're in the country illegally, and they feel there's nowhere to turn. If they go to the authorities, they'll be arrested for, you know, illegal immigration. We've seen the stories, as I mentioned earlier, coming out of places like Thailand, the Philippines, other so-called even uh, uh, sex tourism destinations. And certainly I think there's a growing sense of awareness of the problem globally. But I'm curious, Sean, based on your years of involvement with international justice missions, and I understand you, in fact, came out of private practice in your own law firm to be involved in this ministry organization. Are we hearing more of these stories simply because the reporting is getting better, or are we hearing more of these stories because the horrificness of this crime is on the increase? It's hard to say exactly. There certainly is a great deal uh, more reporting and a great deal of more attention being uh, focused on this issue. But at the same time, what you have is massive economic migration happening, um, as people in more and poorer countries move towards those who are more wealthy, where there's more jobs, and this is a this is part of globalization. It's part of a global phenomena. At, at the same time, more and more roads are getting into these villages, you know, that have been formerly isolated and safe, and by their isolation, and so then the traffickers have access to more and more. Uh, people to to move into the sex trade. So it's a combination of, of both greater attention on the issue and, again, I, I do think that's expanding as the process of globalization and the process of economic migration uh, increases. Talk to us a bit about the role that international justice missions is taking in not only addressing increased awareness of this uh creating a more hostile environment for those in, engaged in the trafficking in the slavery end of of all of this but then too uh the hope that your organization is providing and helping to get these women and sometimes men out of this terrible lifestyle right so when in our offices, so for example, I worked in an office in Thailand, also an office in the Philippines. So we'll do investigations, and we have undercover investigators that will go out and locate these establishments that are selling children for sex. We'll document the identity of those children, the identity of the individuals that are selling them. Um, we'll we'll bring that back. We have a team of lawyers that will review it. We'll write a report, and then we'll go to the local authorities. And, the, and advocate with the authorities and the evidence that we bring of the it's a violation of law but now they have such strong evidence of it that they can't deny it's happening and so we'll push them and push them until they take action and then the the, the object there is to ensure that the girls are rescued and that the individuals that were exploiting them are brought to justice so there's an arrest uh, criminal prosecution of the traffickers and the pimps and the brothel owners hopefully leading to conviction, a, a sentence in prison. And then for the girls, we have teams of social workers that work with them in different um, homes. We call them aftercare homes, working on dealing with the uh, consequences of the abuse, both in terms of their emotional health, their spiritual health, 
and trying to find out whether they can return home, whether that's a viable option. If not, what would be a viable life option for them and giving them education and skills so that they can have a have new life. Oh, so there's just a multiplicity of levels that need to be addressed. And when we come back, I want to talk a bit about what's happening in terms of government involvement to try to deal with this, where the judicial system is, both here stateside and internationally, and most importantly, what the church, the body of Christ can be doing in partnering with and cooperating with organizations like International Justice Missions um, to help not only raise awareness, but also provide a way out for so many women all over the globe that have been caught up in human trafficking. I'm Craig Roberts here in tune with Lifeline. A brief timeout. Back to more of our conversation with Sean Litton, Vice President Field Operations for International Justice Missions, as this edition of Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 